I'll say it very simply. Welcome to The Bookcase. I'm Charlie Gibson, one of the hosts, and I join you with my daughter. Kate Gibson, who is also going to greet simply. Hello. How are you? Nice to meet you. (laughs) All right. Enough with the book nerds. (laughs) and discerning readers. We have a very quirky book, should I call it? Kate and I got this book a few months ago and we said to each other, this is strange. Are we gonna read this book? And we did and we were fascinated. The book is written by a writer for Slate. His name is Henry Grabar and the name of the book is Paved Paradise. But the subtitle explains what it is, how parking explains the world. When we saw that, we thought, we're really going to read this? I saw it in a catalog. And when I saw that title, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I want to know how the author thinks parking explains the world. And actually, just the title got me to thinking about how much parking is a part of my life. Now, I'm from New York City. Now, when you're from New York City, alternate side of the street parking can be a second job, really. Like you should get full benefits just for doing alternate side parking in New York City. But parking is a part of my life. When you get where you're going instantaneously, your head goes to parking because, and I think Henry Grabar does a terrific job of explaining in some ways our visceral and emotional connection to parking. I mean, people are killed over parking spaces every year. And he explains how when you get where you're going and the only thing that's stopping you from getting Getting to where you want to go on time is being trapped in your car. There's something emotional about that. I got to get out of my car. I got to get out of my car. I got to get where I'm going. I got to find a parking space right away. And I think he does a terrific job of explaining why in some ways parking is somewhat of an emotional relationship for us. Well, it's a very simple premise of his book. The more parking lots and spaces cities build, the more people drive. Yes. And then we get more and more parking, more and more parking. And basically we're devoting a huge portion of a city or even a suburbs space to parking. And in some respects, it's crazy, but we do it and people demand it because they don't want to drive around and look for a parking space. I'm just quoting from the book here. The automobile has an insatiable appetite for space. It needs about 300 square feet when stored in its home quarters, 300 square feet when stored at its place of destination, about 600 feet on its way, and it further needs about 200 square feet for those places where it's sold, repaired, and serviced. In other words, we are building huge numbers of places for these cars, which don't use them most of the time. Indeed, as he points out, your car sits idle 95% of the time. I actually think that's probably even low, but we don't use it 95% of the time, and yet we have all those parking spaces for it. And he argues it really impacts negatively all the cities and suburbs of the country. I think it's interesting, too, that he says that more than half of all the U.S. trips in big U.S. metro cities are under a mile. Now, I'm from Minneapolis, so when it's cold, that one mile can feel like, oh, about 55. I think that as Americans have gotten driving into our head, he actually writes that there are cities in Latin America that are doing it a heck of a lot better than U.S. cities. We have gotten driving in our heads and we have gotten parking as a right sort of in our heads too. This is a very American stat, I think too. Drivers take 21% longer to leave a spot if somebody is waiting and 33% longer if the driver honks. Now, if that isn't a statistic about parking entitlement, I don't know what is. I loved this book. I think it's a commentary on the American psyche. He has all kinds of wonderful stat facts, which I think very well prove his point. Actually, you wonder, does any place handle parking well? Yes, he says, Disney World. 
where you park your car and you get in a bus and you go to the park and you get on the rides. You walk to the rides. That's pretty optimal as far as he's concerned. And he says it takes three minutes to find a parking spot on a single block. That block is generating 60,000 extra driving miles every year. Just some of the stat facts that he quotes. It's really interesting how parking explains the world. Our conversation with Henry Grabar. Henry Grabar, it's good to have you in the bookcase. This is this is a book that Katie and I looked at each other and said, we're going to read a book about parking. And then we loved it. I'm so glad to hear that. The subtitle, How Parking Explains the World. How does it? Boy, where should we start? I don't want to I don't want to give away the whole cow here, but I I guess I could say that I started writing this book because I'm a journalist and I work for Slate and the topic that I cover is cities. So I write about urban design, transportation, housing, the environment, climate change. And it seemed like in every single one of those subjects, every story I was writing, whether it was about an affordable housing development or a bike lane or a mass transit system, parking just kept coming up over and over again. And it made me think that this was really this giant and unexamined component of how cities look and feel and function. And if you think about it for a second, it kind of makes sense because I think we all have this understanding that American society has been reshaped around the freedoms and demands of the automobile. And when you think about the automobile's effect on the landscape, Parking is actually the biggest one because it takes up more room than the streets and the freeways. And every car spends about 95 percent of its time parked. I always feel like nonfiction books join a conversation. But I have to admit, yours is the first book that I've read about parking. So I'm interested as you sort of went about this. What conversation are you joining? How many previous works have there been about parking? Or is this sort of one of the first of its kind? Because I was sort of like, gee, I've never thought about this before. I wonder if nobody has. Well, I think the challenge, of course, when you begin a book about parking is that some people think about parking and they think, well, gosh, that sounds like the most boring thing in the world. And in fact, sometimes people even say that to me, but no offense is taken. But then when you get them on the subject, they become very animated. And so I think that there's this curious paradox where people think, oh, that's a boring subject. And then the minute you get them talking about it, it turns out they have all kinds of very strong opinions. You have so many statistical facts in this book that I loved because it illustrates the problem so well. But none, it seems to me, as striking and as shocking by square footage there is more housing for each car in the United States than there is housing for each person. Really? Yes, that is true. And I think one way that we can start to visualize this is to realize that in most houses, the garage is the largest room in the house. <laughs> and the garage does not even account for all the parking in the house because your typical suburban house will often have a concrete driveway apron between the garage and the curb. And then it may have two to three parking spaces along the curb as well. And that's not the only space that's dedicated to the car, right? I mean, the car also has a parking space at the mall. It has one at the office. Mm. And so if you begin to add all these up, you just come up with a staggering amount of parking. And when you talk about smaller units, you know, like a two-bedroom apartment in a city, for example, it may even be the case that the parking just associated with that particular apartment unit, just those parking spaces, take up more space than the unit itself. And that's because when you talk about parking, you're not just talking about the actual nine by 18 slot into which the car pulls, but also the ingress, the egress, the ramps, the curb cuts. I mean, there's a whole infrastructure associated with it. So in brief, yes, the space adds up. That is absolutely stunning. So you write so much about the effects of all this. 
What's it doing to our country? First and perhaps most obvious is that by requiring every new apartment or home come with a certain number of parking spaces, we have added on an additional cost to each unit of housing that may be, well, let's say it starts at about $25,000. And in big cities where parking is expensive and developers have to build parking underground, you could be talking about adding as much as $150,000 on the cost of each new unit of housing just to account for that parking. And in many cities, that's obligatory. That is not optional. And so if you're, say, a low-income renter who doesn't drive or maybe only has one car for your whole household, that's a massive cost that you're incurring as a renter that you're not making use of. And so that's one way in which housing is affected by our obsession with creating enough parking. You just talked a little bit about what you call mandatory, you know, they are mandatory minimums, the requirements that builders and architects have to put parking. And some cities have these mandatory minimums. And so... I guess my question for you is, are there people that are still rabidly in favor of mandatory minimums in terms of parking? And if I had a conversation with one of those folks, what would their argument be to me if I wanted to eliminate them? I think what they would say is that parking minimums are a pretty elegant way to force the private sector to solve the parking problem. And if you're in a Mm -hmm. city where it seems like there's never enough parking like picture an American city in 1955 or 1960. People are circling around the block. There's nowhere to park. The downtown businesses are hearing from their clients that they, you know, they're decided to stop in the suburbs because they can't park downtown. (laughs) And you're the city government. And like, what are your options? You can bulldoze half of downtown to build public garages, which they did in many cases. Or, and this is the clever bit, you can put it in your building code that every new building, no matter what it is, has to come with a certain number of parking spots. And this is what basically every city in the United States did starting in the middle of the 20th century. And these requirements worked wonders. I mean, if your goal was to force the private sector to create a ton of parking, it could not have worked better. Like I said, six parking spaces for every car. It's a miracle. It is also, unfortunately, a miracle with many negative externalities that I don't think they could have anticipated at that time. Put yourself in an American city in 1955. The idea that the city would have too much parking would have seemed just crazy. But that is indeed how it went in many places. So when they were doing that kind of planning, because when it it strikes me, too, that one of the things in your book is about paradoxes. Parking is somewhat about paradoxes for me in some of the points you make. Essentially, one of the paradoxes being that you create more parking, you're going to have more congestion because people drive more. Is that something that could have been predicted in 1950, that more parking would, in fact, create more congestion? You know, the more parking you provide, the more people will drive the more spaced out and low density the environment will become, and the less pleasant it will be to use any other means of transportation besides driving. And I think we've all felt that, right? Like there's places where you drive because it doesn't feel like it would be safe or pleasant to get there any other way. And those landscapes tend to be dominated by parking lots. And there's this funny kind of magic that occurs too, where one of the reasons that people often say it's so hard to find a parking spot is because their tolerance for walking is very, very low. Well, but I live and I just want to throw one more caveat into that. I live in Minneapolis. Yeah. Do American cities in really cold places get a pass? I guess it just depends what your priorities are. I guess one thing we've learned in this 20th century experiment with parking minimums is that like you actually can create a place where there is enough parking for everybody who wants to drive there. It's just in many ways an unpleasant place in a lot of other respects. I'm not here to tell anybody that they need to pack up their suburban house and move to a tiny apartment in the East Village and become a 
bike riding bohemian. But but I do think that there <laughs> the things that many people say they want and really do want from their communities, which is to say walkability, attractive architecture, affordable housing, a diversity of transportation choices. Those things are only possible when you begin to reckon with parking's insatiable appetite for land. The book is funny. And that's, I think, what made it so appealing to Kate. I can pick out all sorts of, whoever said life was about the journey and not the destination, never had to look for a place to park. You write. And it's true. My favorite is the sign that somebody put when they'd shoveled out their parking space. I don't know where this was. And he put a sign saying, no parking. I did not spend several pre-dawn hours and risk cardiac infarction to shovel this space for you. If you're arrogant enough to park here, I hope you're the type of person who can afford a new set of tires. <laughs> I, I love that. I love it. Chicago. Is that Chicago? Yes. I'm not surprised because they get their <laughs> share of snow. But it is very serious because it does have enormous effects, climate effects, time effects on people. You write that people spend 17 hours a year looking for parking spaces. The impact on each of us individually is profound. Yeah, I'm not just to go back to what Kay was saying earlier about looking for parking and walking. I think one of the arguments in this book is that we do not want to create a society where people spend more time looking for parking. I think the people who love to drive and love to park and the people who are in favor of parking reform are actually aligned on this subject, which is that it is bad when you arrive in a neighborhood and you have to drive around the block 10 times. There's this incredible study out of Los Angeles that calculated the amount of time drivers spend looking for parking spots. And we're talking about millions of miles of driving added to our national driving total every year just from people looking for parking. And so I think one of the promises of reform is that it would actually be easier and not harder, perhaps, to look for a parking space. And, and there's a few reasons that might be the case. And one of them is simply that parking is very poorly organized. It's sort of maddening in that way. And that if you charge for parking, even a little bit in the most high demand locations, you can cause people to sort of fall into place according to how long they plan to park for and what parking is worth to them. And you can ensure that there will always be a space for somebody who drives up. And that doesn't even necessarily mean that parking gets more expensive for everybody. Perhaps it gets more expensive right in front of the restaurant, but maybe it's cheaper in the garage a couple blocks away. So you see there's a sort of rebalancing there that ultimately, I think, produces benefits for drivers as, as well as for everybody who wants to enjoy the urban environment in some other way. Is it possible at this point in specifically in American history to have a thesis about parking and to make suggestions about how parking can improve given that COVID and electric cars seem to be like throwing everything into the air? I do think that one thing we saw in COVID, which I think, again, aligns with existing trends, is that it caused people to think anew about the amount of public space that is dedicated to car storage. And perhaps that was just a temporary phenomenon where people said, you know what? This space in front of the pizza place, this doesn't need to be parking. We don't need laws that require this to be parking. This could be restaurant seating. Once you have that breakthrough, it doesn't need to be just restaurants, right? Like that space could be a bike lane. It could be a bus lane. It could be used to plant water absorbent plants that would hold up rainfall to stop urban flooding events. I mean, there's just all kinds of potential for this land and cities that, you know, we decided 100 years ago ought to be dedicated to just one thing. So with respect to COVID, I think there's some optimism I feel there. And then with respect to electric cars, I mean, this is once in a century change in the way we think about our parking infrastructure, because something like one in three Americans do not have their own garage. And if those people are going to 
be able to make the transition to an electric car. They're not going to get left behind. And that means we need to think way more carefully about how parking is allotted and how it changes hands and how it's managed and all that stuff. Because the way that parking works right now, where you put a nasty sign in the driveway and tell anybody if they park there, you're going to kill them. <laughs> that's not going to work when we need to share electric vehicle chargers. And we are going to need to share them. There's not going to, we're not going to build two, two billion electric vehicle chargers, uh, one for every parking space. You break down a lot of different cities in this book, Detroit, New York, LA, lots of different cities, but you include one location that isn't a city. It's Disney World. And I'm interested why Disney World specifically as the only non-city example that you write about in this book. Well, I write about lots of suburbs too. Yes, you do. You do. I'm sorry. Yes. Disney World is in some ways more of a city than many of the cities that I actually write about. <laughs> it's like in terms of employment statistics, the transit network inside it. I think Disney World is cool because it shows how planning for cars works if you exist in a kind of autocratic regime where decision makers have total power and control, um, <laughs> which is to say... Uh, they do not let you drive your car right up to the ride and park right in front of the ride. Because if that happened, then Disney World wouldn't be very much fun at all. <laughs> You'd be driving between every ride. There would be horrible traffic jams. Kids would be run over by cars. Like, it would be a disaster. <laughs> so there is a reason that they made this decision that we're going to put all the parking in one place. You'll park once, and then you'll enter the park, and you'll be able to move around more freely. And as a result, I think Disney World has, like, a mass transit system that's on par with like a major American city, which is kind of astonishing, I think. But to a larger extent, it shows that if you are thinking top down about how to manage a place, you come to the realization that if it's going to be like a dense and thriving and lively place, perhaps not as dense and thriving and lively as Disney World, but maybe close, it is just simply not tenable to have everybody park directly in front of their destination. It's just as a matter of pure geometry, it's not going to work. So, Henry, if I were a activist in a city worried about congestion, worried about the climate, worried about, for instance, in Salt Lake City, the inversions that occur, and they do in so many cities because of all the driving. If you were that activist, what would you be advocating as a way to approach this problem? Well, I think there's two big avenues of activism on this subject right now. And the first one is to get rid of parking minimums. So, and that's been happening across the country, cities large and small, to a lesser extent, some suburbs. But the realization that required parking is a big subsidy for car ownership. To some extent, it's a subsidy for driving. And so it creates emissions as a second order effect and also greenhouse gases and local particle pollution and also drives up housing costs, right? So, so activists have been pretty focused on this issue and they've made a lot of progress in cities like Minneapolis which no longer requires apartment builders to build a certain number of parking spaces. Of course, they can if they want. If they know that their tenants want parking, they're welcome to build parking spaces, but it's not a matter of law. That's a place where people have had a lot of success. I think it's something that has appeal across the political spectrum because on the Democratic you know, left-wing side, you get people saying, well, I'm worried about the climate. I'm worried about people consuming, you know, burning fossil fuels. I'm worried about affordable housing. And then on the right, you have people simply saying, well, I should be able to do what I want with my property. The government shouldn't be able to tell me that I need 25 parking spaces to open a restaurant in an old building on Main Street. The result of that is that I'm going to be forced to like tear down the building next door. I mean, that's what happened. That's the story of the last 50 years of the American city. So that's been a subject where I think there's been a lot of momentum. And then, and then the second one briefly is just it's about safe streets because 
I don't think that parking reform is predicated on a society where people drive less, but it would be a lot easier to begin to rethink some of these land uses and rethink how much space we've devoted to parking if people did drive somewhat less. And I feel optimism on this subject because a great number of trips in this country are under three miles. I think it's something like half of all automobile trips are under three miles. So there's an enormous potential for those trips to be replaced by trips on electric bicycles, golf carts, rollerblades, what have you. I have optimism about that. One of the things that's really clear about parking is that it stands in the way of a lot of policies that make mass transit fast and effective, right? We see this in New York City, where I'm from. The average speed of a city bus is something like seven miles per hour, which is crazy. And there's like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who rely on these buses every day. And why are the buses so slow? Why do we subject people to like 50 minute commutes when they could otherwise be like 15 minutes? Well, the answer is because we do not have the political wherewithal to decide that one lane of a street should be dedicated for buses. And the reason we can't give up that lane is because people are too attached to parking their cars. Mm. Henry Grabar, it is a pleasure to talk to you. It is. As I say, this book is full of interesting statistical facts and great humor as well. I love the fact that you quote Jerry Seinfeld (laughs) saying that in Manhattan, it's like musical chairs, except everybody sat down around 1964. Indeed, absolutely correct. Henry Grabar, the book is Paved Paradise. How Parking Explains the World. It is not only important, it's a good read. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters, using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. our rapid-fire questions with Henry Grabar. City whose design most confuses you? Los Angeles, of course. Why? Have you ever tried to get around Los Angeles? It's like the neighborhoods are all sort of self-contained. They don't add up, and I can never remember which one aligns with which one further on. What city has done the best job of approaching parking? 
Well, I guess I should tip my hat to Minneapolis because Minneapolis is one of the first cities to get rid of parking minimums and they've made a lot of interesting land use reforms and I'm excited to see what gets built there in the years to come. Are you living in your favorite city? I am living in Paris right now, which is pretty close to my favorite city. I can't complain. Favorite city to be a tourist? I like Chicago for tourism. I think Chicago is just jam-packed with great stuff to do and eat and it is so much more affordable than New York City, which is my hometown. Writer that made you want to be a journalist? It's a cliche, but Hunter S. Thompson, I can't say that I feel like this, uh, you know, this book maybe doesn't uh, align very much with 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 his work. But uh, <laughs> but I still I still uh, I still relish reading his political columns. If you could design a parking space solely devoted to Henry Grabar, what would it look like? I just plant a tree. I mean, to me. Everybody's full of crazy ideas about what we might do with all this parking. Like maybe we could turn it into bowling alleys. No, no. What our cities really need for the climate, for shade, for livability, for stormwater, the best possible thing we could do is plant some trees. So as a city writer, you've probably studied a ton of different folks who are legends in urban planning. Which one is your hero? Are you a Jane Jacobs? Are you a Robert Moses? Are you a Sadiq Khan? And why? Oh, well, I, I'll give a shout out here to my um, my great aunt, Shirley Hayes, who is not a household name, but was the chief activist who, along with Jane Jacobs and many other New Yorkers of her generation, convinced the city to take the cars out of Washington Square Park, which used to be a turnaround roundabout for buses that ran on Fifth Avenue. And it was full of uh, parking spots as well. And Shirley was one of the West Village moms who rallied around the idea that the park should be a space for people and for kids. And they won. And I think if you look at Washington Square Park today, it's hard to imagine it being any other way. And there's a little plaque for her near the arch. Ah. So look out for that. Do you own a car? I don't, but I know how to drive. (laughs) (laughs) I can parallel park. I mean, come on. (laughs) I can't. So that's good. That sets you way ahead of me. Our conversation with Henry Grabar, you know, when I read his book, I'm reminded there's a Paula Poundstone joke where she says she saw a sign that said, don't even think about parking here. She said, well, I walked right up to that parking spot and I thought about it. (laughs) (laughs) I remember when I first started going to New York when I was little, just for people who read this book and think there are no solutions to the parking and the environmental problems that go with it. I remember when I was a kid in New York City walking through Times Square. I remember how congested it was to the point where as a pedestrian, you often felt like you had to get real close to the buildings. And quite a few years ago, they revolutionized Times Square by just taking the cars out and making essentially Times Square a big sitting park with tables and chairs. And I remember thinking at the time, that's crazy, but it totally works. And now I can't picture Times Square any other way. And when you watch people go into that area, they sort of take the seat and they adjust it a little bit and they make it their own. And Times Square has become a spot for like almost quiet reflection, which is fascinating to me. So there are solutions to this. Yeah, the Good Morning America studios, where I worked for years and years and years, were right on Times Square. And I remember when the change came. And I think it was Michael Bloomberg, who was the mayor, who made the change and shut down Times Square to traffic. I may be wrong about this memory. They put out a bunch of tables and chairs. Now, of course, New York being New York, people steal the chairs, but... but, But, but still, it's really a very nice situation. People, as they wander through, get to sit down and simply sort of enjoy the, 
the ambiance. But to Grabar's basic point is that free parking has become basically the arbiter of zoning, of how cities get planned. And it's really counterproductive, he thinks. So anyway, I thought all the stat facts were interesting. I thought it's a really interesting premise, a way to look at cities, a way to look at city planning. He says if you start charging for parking, people won't drive as much. He cites a case where the Gates Foundation in Seattle built a new building they were going to move a whole lot of people to, and they put in a bunch of parking spaces and they charged for them. And the percentage of people who drove to work went way down. It's interesting. He talks about the disadvantages of areas that have a lot of free parking that I had never considered, which is free parking causes people to cruise because they're going around the blocks and they're looking for that parking space, that ever elusive free parking space. And so they end up putting miles and miles of extra stuff on their car, just looking for that parking space. I'd never considered that as a a side effect of free parking. So that was fascinating. And if they put in meters and stuff and you park, of course, you're always worried about, are you going to get a ticket? The city is delighted to give you a ticket, actually. Another one of his stat facts. In 2016, the country's 25 largest cities collected $1.3 billion from illegal parking citations, almost as much as they collected from meters and lucrative garage taxes put together. Ah, more stat facts, more stat facts. I also just want to say one other thing. Meter maids and meter persons out there, I see you. He writes about these folks in the book as like one of the only professions where you can't wear your uniform during lunch because you're so likely to get assaulted or spat on or verbally abused. So meter maids everywhere, meter persons, you are unsung heroes. And what city was it? New Orleans who sells meter made voodoo dolls. (laughs) That was that was one of the things that tickled me. And one of the meter made some guy was complaining that he'd left his car in a space where you couldn't leave an unattended vehicle. He said, well, my dog's in the car. <laughs> and the meter made said, okay, let's see the dog's license. <laughs> I thought it was terrific. That's great. So That's we're going <laughs> to marry this with second story books. We haven't talked uh, yet to a used bookstore and second story books in the Washington DC area is perhaps the sine qua non of all uh, secondhand or used bookstores. Alan Stipek is the operator of it. He started it many years ago, had some new books in his store, but began to realize that there was a real market for used books. And wait till you hear how many books he sees and comes through his store every year. Alan Stipek of Second Story Books. Alan Stipek of Second Story Books in Washington, D.C. and Rockville, Maryland. Alan, you've been at this business of selling used books for a long time, and you're actually the first used bookstore that we have featured. Tell me the difference between being in the used book business and being in the new book business. The difference is primarily is the obligation of the user, antiquarian bookseller, to retain what I would say a more eclectic, diverse inventory of books because of the opportunities we have to purchase from the general public or through estates or in auctions. And independent booksellers, especially new booksellers, have to be retain an obligation to the books that are currently in print, which in some circumstances can be very restricting. Do you get most of your inventory from estate sales? Where do you collect books? We probably see over a million books a year now. Wow. That is a combination. It's a staggering amount in real time. But when we go into homes that are 5,000, 10,000 books, 3,000, 5,000 books, they add up every week. 
Is there a way to be strategic about your buying when you sort of have to take what becomes available? How do you strategize for that? How do we do that? We have to be very honest and very blunt with our clientele. So we have a buying policy which takes into perspective the following. We buy books on the criteria that the higher price books, the antiquarian books, what you would describe as rare books, are purchased primarily for one platform of how we sell, which is either by auction or cataloging or in our general rare book categories at work. Then our second criteria is books that we know that there are market interests that we will buy primarily because there is repetitive interest in these fields. The third group that we look at are books that we would like to sell, but we have many copies of. So we try to take the client's best interests at heart and we will help them donate those books to libraries in our area so they do not go lacking. The fourth category, unfortunately, which is more than it used to be, are books that we can only recycle now because the market interest has waned greatly. So we're very, where you say strategic, we're very cautious about overbuying. So we probably select about 20% of the books we see per annum. We always ask about most influential book in your life. So I want to ask about the most influential book in your life, but I also want to ask a question that's unique to you, which is which book is your prized possession as well? So that's a very difficult question to answer, okay? Because I have moved a lot, personal library of over 10,000 books since <laughs> I've been seven, since 1973. Actually, <laughs> since 1968 when I came to Washington to go to college. And I think the reason I actually opened up the bookstore was I needed extra shelf space for my personal collection. <laughs> okay? And, and because of that, I was able to build up a personal book collection, which now has probably 800,000 books in it. I occasionally sell some, but, you know, in real time, my favorite book of all time was Catch-22. Most expensive book you ever sold? It's the one I didn't know was that expensive. Somebody <laughs> else did. <laughs> yeah, they don't tell you. So I know somewhere out there, somebody turned a million dollar book on me. But, uh, I mean, let's put it this way. We've turned items for seven figures. Whoa. And uh, we've, we've been blessed with the opportunity to handle extraordinary items, one of a kind items, been able to put together work on major collections that had significant response in the marketplace. It's not really what's the most valuable item. I mean, I was an intermediary in the sale of a Dunlop copy of the uh, Declaration of Independence. Mm. That's a $12 million item. I was an intermediary on an Audubon elephant folio. That's another eight-figure item. And just in closing, I have a second, third-generation staff right now who I hope will take the mantle over the next couple of years for showing sincere interest. All I hope is that in their lifetime, they can have as much enjoyment as I did or do. Alan Stipak of Second Story Books, we want to remind you of the great folks that make this podcast possible. And at the end, a coda from Henry Grabar, exactly the kind of coda that you would expect from a man who wrote a book about parking. He quotes the Pope. 
The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio. Produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Laura Mayer is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Shertavian. The quality of life in cities has much to do with systems of transport, which are often a source of much suffering for those who use them. Many cars used by one or more people circulate in cities, causing traffic congestion, raising the level of pollution, and consuming enormous quantities of non-renewable energy. This makes it necessary to build more roads and parking areas, which spoil the urban landscape. Pope Francis. <laughs>